Welcome to Places, everyone. I'm Lonnie Firestone. On October 24th, 2022, I interviewed two artists who were integral to the Broadway production of A Strange Loop, the Pulitzer Prize-winning musical by Michael R. Jackson. Following acclaimed productions at Playwrights Horizons in New York and at Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company in D.C., the show transferred to Broadway where it won several Tony Awards, including Best Musical. The praise from critics, the attention from celebrities, the Pulitzer, and the Tony, they all seem to indicate the musical's widespread appeal. But well before the arrival of these accolades, the show spent over a decade in development, and Michael R. Jackson had difficulty finding a director who would go anywhere near the material. A Strange Loop portrays a character named Usher, who works as an usher for a Disney musical. He hopes to write a musical of his own, but sizable obstacles stand in his way, like the daily burden of economic instability thanks to overwhelming student debt. He also encounters social and romantic hurdles as a big, gay, black man. And, most painfully, his parents, who are dedicated to Christian belief, express their hope that he will give up his, quote, reprobate lifestyle. The show is pathmaking in portraying Usher's trials and experiences. This episode contains highlights from a live interview event at JCC Harlem. The next episode picks up the conversation with original cast member Jason Vesey. My other guest, associate director Namuna Sise, helped guide the show in its lead-up to Broadway. As a quick note, the live interview event includes ambient sounds. I hope you'll enjoy these episodes. You can catch A Strange Loop on Broadway through January 15th, 2023. So thank you so much, JCC Harlem. Thank you to Dylan for coordinating tonight. Thank you to Jason and Amina. I'm really excited to talk with you. So A Strange Loop is really one of the most path-making and acclaimed shows to reach the stage in recent years. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2020, Best Musical Tony Award last year. And through its unique storytelling, it gets at the process by which the main character, Usher, searches and hopes to achieve a place of self-acceptance. And I want to talk with both of you about the particulars through which he comes to arrive at something resembling self-love by the end of the show. To start, A Strange Loop is that rare musical that is an original creation. The vast majority of musicals, if you just think of a musical top of your head right now, it's probably an adaptation of something. Pretty much all musicals throughout musical history are adapted from a source text, whether that's a previous play, a book, or a novel, or more recently, increasingly, movies. A Strange Loop is really an original creation of Michael R. Jackson's brain. And he tells the story of a character named Usher, who is an usher, through the use of different formative cultural figures and reference points. Three that I want to bring up now with you are the films of Tyler Perry, the songs of pop rock singer Liz Fair, and the philosophical writings of Douglas Hofstadter. Can you tell me what was your relationship with and familiarity with each of these three prior to and during the development of the show? And why is each instructive in telling the story of Strange Loop? Can I ask a question? Why do you use this? I can like 
because the debate about what constitutes an inner white girl, the fact that it's debate is, has, is, is gone this way. I'm from, not every white girl could be an inner white girl. So that, how about Alanis and Avril? No, no. Inner white, inner white girls are the ones who even the white people didn't listen to. They were on the outskirts. So like, oh. to, uh, Troy Amos, Ani DeFranco, Liz Fair. Alanis started out at the top of the charts. Avril Lavigne cannot be pop, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah, right? So, I'm learning, I'm and learning. It's shifted now because I'm not going to tell someone that they're in a white girl camp being in a white girl. <laughs> but like, it was a very specific period of time in the early to mid-90s of these artists. Shirley Manson from Garbage, you know? They were kind of like on the outskirts of like, this weird like punk, rock, semi-pop situation. So I knew who this girl was. She just wasn't mine. Mine was Fiona Apple. <laughs> um, and then Douglas Hofstadter 
It's, it's so dense and well once you're past 75 pages you can tell us <laughs> I, I still kind of like I don't know <laughs> so first of all I want Jason to write the liner notes for the cast album <laughs> <laughs> you know, I also grew up with the female singer-songwriters yes. so Liz Fair is recognizable the, there's these little touches that if you know you know in that song that are from right. her album mm-hmm. that felt really recognizable and accessible and admittedly, Tyler Perry is so much less so for me yeah. in scenes where Usher is channeling the method of Tyler Perry in a kind of storytelling. And it's, it's comic, it acknowledges that Tyler Perry is an icon, and at the same time, Usher has a kind of criticism or even disdain for the way he crafts stories. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask your, your thoughts about how you threaded the needle, Jason, as a performer and you as a director, in those scenes that feel very fraught in how Tyler Perry's crafting narratives to make it funny but not too funny, to make it poignant and hit the right emotional notes. I think it starts with like writing that has a clear point of view, which I think his writing about that topic does. I think there is one of the things when we were building that number specifically or like writing a gospel play was some people were concerned with leaning into the comedy of it and feeling like they would come up like it was going to be cooning essentially I never had that opinion because I because I feel like cooning is an active choice and I know what I'm doing and I understand the broad strokes of it, and I understand the reference points of it, and I understand the science of style. I also think that it's less about being anti-Tyler Perry and more about the assumption of alignment because you're a black artist, you know? It, it, it's really absurd. I wish I could talk about it. You know what it is? It's like doing a, it's like doing a, a, a sketch on a living cover. Here's what we're doing, go. And whatever, however they receive it, they receive it. But it is wild to me how many people, how that, for some people, that commentary on Tyler Perry is the thing that shuts them down from the days. What do you mean shuts them down? I mean, there are a lot of people who, when you're focused on his achievements or choose to focus on just his achievements, it's very easy to focus on the blind spots and the the harm that some people feel that his work and it's very easy to focus on, like, to feel like we are knocking a black man who's done so much for 
a sector of our community in terms of dollars, its presence in Hollywood, in terms of giving jobs to people, you know, the way that a character, soapbox, the way that, that a character tricks people into getting A's as opposed to exploring why that character can't feel like they can believe in themselves. You know, those are the, that, that's kind of where I think the disconnect happens, where people were turned off and shut down from the show at that point in time. Mm -hmm. You know, even though it is, in a way, pro Tyler Perry. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, and the show allows it to be all those things. Right. To step outside of it and also up close have that contrast with how right. it's portrayed. Right. And I think it also comments on the, whether Usher likes it or not, the legitimacy of the art form of the church way. Uh -huh. People enjoy it for a reason. Yeah. It shouldn't be treated like something that's just based because you prefer things that you feel like a little bit more elevated. There's an art form into it. There's a reason why people connect with it. And I think that like, while commenting on Tyler Perry, there is a comment on the legitimacy of that genre of theater. Mm -hmm. And I think about the show also, Michael R. Jackson is having a conversation about highbrow and lowbrow within the form of the show itself. So the, the musical is about a writer writing, and there's a lot of stories out there that portray writers in the process of writing. But what's really interesting about A Strange Loop is that Usher isn't just writing a story, he's writing this story. And there's a, there were a few other things that came to mind as I was watching and reflecting after that were similar. There's Fun Home, the musical, which is based on Alison Bechdel's graphic novel, graphic memoir. There's the play The Inheritance by Matthew Lopez. These are three, including The Strange Loop, where the protagonist, who's a writer, is writing the story, uh, not just a story. And in the opening scene, a song called Intermission Song, we see Usher's thoughts, of which Jason is the fifth. Yes. And these are elements of his brain. Elements of his super ego and id and ego, and constantly having this battle and dialogue and sometimes support with him and of him. And they're talking about the fraught experience of writing, how you never feel like it's coming together. There's the line, he should start with what he's thinking, which is just a cursor blinking. And a moment later, they add, no one cares about a writer who is struggling to write. So it occurred to me in that moment that writer's block is not inherently dramatic. <laughs> it's really hard to make that interesting. But an individual yearning to tell his story is. So how do you think that opening scene sets up the writer emotionally to be invested in Usher's creative process? I mean, I, I think what makes a story interesting in the theater world, with the acting world, at least we, we talk about like what makes this day different from any other day. Like that's how a story starts. And it's obstacles, it's conflict. And so like, yeah, writer's block isn't inherently interesting, but like why do you have writer's block is interesting, right? Like what is making it impossible for you to tell your story? Like what are the myriad of like insecurities, anxieties, pressure that that are making it impossible for you to do the thing that you uh, allegedly most want to do that is the most important thing to you and so I think that's that's what makes it interesting is that like if we just saw Usher sitting up there with a computer being like I can't write <laughs> but we get to see his thoughts that's it in bodies 
And so we get to like actually see his thoughts. That that's what makes it interesting is that we're seeing the conflict within Usher, and that's what makes the show so successful is because all of us, whether we're black, queer, whatever, or not, understand what it means to have our thoughts fucking us up. So like that, that, that to me is what intermission song is. Mm -hmm. And I think also intermission song, you know, most opening numbers should always kind of be the best like call card, you know, it's hard to do it with an opening number. And I think on top of that, just the visual of these, six people, cast of seven, Usher's the central character, then thoughts one through six, so an ensemble of six people. These fantastically individual, virtuosic performers and individuals who are also different, and we don't know yet what they're about to represent fully, but this swarm of, of, of these people that are him, but not, also kind of helps like, make it pop a little bit. Especially because a big part of that opening song is each thought in their unique way belittle him. Mm -hmm. And you each have your own angle. And if you didn't know how many ways you could possibly criticize yourself, yeah. this show yeah. really points to that. Yeah, for sure. And how did, how did you come out that song in terms of the kind of approach? I noticed the, the, the very first one, your daily self-loathing, mm -hmm. does it in this very like slide in there soft manner, not hugely aggressive. I mean, that's the brilliance about James Jackson, who plays Daily Self-Loathing, is that he, James just could read the words on that bag and you crack up. And, but, but there's something about just your self-loathing, saying it in a way that feels so, just so kind and casual. <laughs> you know? I kind of liken it to the way that Blanche would read Rose on the Golden Girls. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just like, you know, this is what it is, you know, and that's, that's his style. And so, really, it's like a big playground being a bop. Because any choice, even no matter how ridiculous it is, can be like, yeah, do that. You know? Yeah. And we're going to talk in a moment about how Jason also plays characters. Yeah, yeah. But you have this ability in the thought moments to just be in this swirling space. Yes. So, Namuna, when you came on board, you mentioned a little bit earlier that the show had already won a Pulitzer. And it already had this successful first run at Playwrights Horizons. So you're coming in for the pre-Broadway run leading up to the Broadway production. So having such an auspicious beginning and then coming in, and now you're working with directors Stephen Brackett. Where did you find areas for strengthening and development, and what kind of position is that when the show already seems like it's doing so fantastically, and you're coming in to see how can we strengthen it more? Yeah, I mean, I think I've had a leg up, which is that I didn't see the show before. I had a call with Stephen Brackett to see if we would connect as um, me being his, at that time, assistant director for the Willie production. And I, you know, I, I read it before, I read the play before that, but you don't know, I mean, when you read it on the page, like, you don't quite know, I mean, it's still amazing. It won a Pulitzer for a reason. I mean, the writing is like, unbelievable. But you don't know what it is until you see it. And so I read it, and I, I was talking to Stephen, and I was like, listen, I didn't see the show. But I actually think that's helpful for the room, because everybody that has been in the room has been with this show for like 20, 12, 10 years. And like, I think it'll be an asset to the room for a, a, like a, a brand new eye who's never seen this before to be like, actually that's confusing, I don't know what that means. And so I think that that's 
sort of the things that I, I was able, like at the beginnings of the process, to bring to it. And also, like I remember there's a song, I think we'll talk about it later, because I know Lonnie loves it, called <laughs> Periodically. And every time I would watch Jam, John Andrew Morrison, do that song in the room, I was like <clears throat> sobbing. Like I couldn't contain myself. And Stephen would like turn to me and be like, like, yeah, the yeah. first, like, 20 times I watched this, I also was sobbing. And, like, I forgot, like, how moving pieces of it are. And that was helpful for the room. Also, we would have a lot of discussions throughout the process about, like, things that are hard and triggering about the show. And we would have a lot of conversations about those things. And I felt like I was, I was able to sort of come in with a new perspective and to to come in sort of on the leadership side from like a different generation than some of the artists that were on that, this side of the table to be like, no, actually I think we should like deal with that versus like, oh no, this is just how it's been all along. So to me it was a lot, the show from, since I have seen it for the first time a year ago, hasn't changed that much. It has changed, but it hasn't changed that much. But I think what's changed is the conversations that are happening in the room in like a deeper way and and sort of being a part of, of that strengthening and developing from that side, just like understanding more like where everybody is coming from as actors in the space or as artists in the space. I hope that answers the question. Mm -hmm. It was also beneficial to have more, to, an additional female presence mm -hmm. to the creative team and also uh, more addition of blackness to the creative team. That was very impactful for us, for you to be there. We, when we first we were like, oh my God, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was a big deal. That shift also helped. Oh, cool. Yeah. So were there conversations you had in rehearsal that had a different flow or a different energy following Numino's arrival or through conversations from all the perspectives that she brings to it? I mean, I think so for sure. It was less about, I think with what I observed with you was more about you kind of taking stock on the dynamic and observing and then being like, well, from someone who's new here, <laughs> what about this, y'all? Or this is how, you know, being a liaison. Yeah. Which was really, again, because it was very helpful because these new set of eyes can look and be like, oh, they don't realize that this is what's happening. In, in terms of the things that we needed to work out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would also say like, I mean, two things. One, that there were, like there have been like cast members who've been like, hey, I want you in this room when we're having a discussion or something. So it's, yeah, I, I hope it was helpful. Yeah. And how about the different scale of a Broadway stage? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's where you're at. Like, you mean the literal stage or like Broadway? Okay. <laughs> I actually am curious to hear what you think because you're on the stage. It doesn't. It doesn't feel bigger because they think they expand. They how they made it fit and seem the same, but like for Broadway was really brilliant with like the borders and the lights. It feels very familiar, and it does not feel that different to me at all. Set wise, it just feels more zhuzhed up and upgraded. We've got space backstage, <laughs> you know. Well, you guys have to push the wall. I was about to say that we have to, this, the, 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 the thoughts used to have to push the set, which we don't have to now because we're on Broadway and they have money. And I, <laughs> <laughs> when we had the, the big 
big like, we're gonna tell the cast that we're going to Broadway. I was on a Zoom and like everyone's like super excited and they're like, we're going to Broadway. And I literally went, where's my house? said, do we have to push the set? <laughs> first, first question. Um, it, 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 and I think on purpose, they chose to make it feel the same for us, mm-hmm. which I'm really kind of grateful for, mm-hmm. for sure, for sure. We have a lot more height, which is cool. There's yeah. a moment in the show where like it expands upwards, mm-hmm. which is really, um, from the outside at least, I'm yeah. sure y'all don't feel it from the stage probably, mm-hmm. but from the outside it makes it feel yeah. more expansive. These were highlights of the conversation at JCC Harlem. In the next episode, I'll sit down separately with Jason and Namuna to hear more of their thoughts on performing, directing, and reflecting on the musical. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Places Everyone on iTunes or Spotify. And follow me, Lonnie Firestone, on Instagram. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.